the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover 3 and everywhere you get your podcasts on demand. Thanks for hanging out. Smash that subscribe. Smash the like and come and join us in the chat. It is Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern time for those of you hanging out with us live. And that means it's time for us to get into some of the biggest games of the week. That's right. Every single Wednesday, we go into a big game breakdown. And it is impossible in the history of the Cover 3 podcast for me to remember an early season Saturday that is bigger than this one. Because it has been since 2006 that we have had this many ranked-on-ranked matchups on a September Saturday. We've got six games between ranked teams. We've got eight games between undefeated teams. It doesn't get any bigger than this, and so we are going to be leaning uh, a little bit heavier on our breakdowns, looking at keys to the game, matchups, X-Factors, storylines, and so much more. Uh, So briefly rolling through, really just like one-ish type headline because it is something that gets asked every single time conference realignment comes up. Every single time conference realignment comes up. What about promotion relegation? What about promotion relegation? What if we set up a scenario where you got to win, go up, lose, move down? It creates all this interesting uh, you know, matchups later in the year. You're fighting for your life to stay up. Well, as the Pac-2, Oregon State and Washington State, who will be playing, talk about that game in a little bit, and the Mountain West continue to look at each other and try and figure out what the best way to move forward is, according to Ross Dellinger, Yahoo Sports, one of the ideas in the no bad ideas portion is that they explore a promotion relegation model. So, Danny, are you in? That's the question. Would you sign up for the Pac-2, the Mountain West? They form together. They probably keep the Pac-12 name, right, just to keep the branding. I mean, much yeah. love to you, Mountain West, but... You know, just sort of move on from that. But then you get an A league and a B league. Do you think this is something that could work? Because I know that a lot of fans in their fantasy land of of conference realignment have always talked about it. But this this is the closest I've heard to someone considering it seriously. I love it. 
absolutely love it. I hate that I love it because it comes from the world of soccer. And I never really understood what relegation even was until like six or seven years ago when I started talking to Tom Fornelli about soccer. And he explained it to me. I think it's awesome. You know what I think is even better about it? Maybe some up. I hope they do it because then future of college football do other leagues say, oh my gosh, they found something that is dynamic, that is exciting, that keeps the entire season all the way through November, gives you reason to watch, like keeps it exciting. Because what I've always thought, like pair up the SEC with the Sun Belt, you know, give the ACC um, Conference USA, give the Big Ten Mac, you know, Big 12 Mountain West, where we've tie in those after and have the same system on the biggest scale. So if this is a dry run, for the bigger ones, those bigger leagues could look at it and say, oh, they might have found something. So I love it. I think it's a great idea. But is it feasible? That's if, the thing. It depends on the finances, right? Like there cannot be a dramatic difference between your A league and your B league. There's mm-hmm. no way that as a whole, this, um, you know, pack two Mountain West combo, you wouldn't sign up for it knowing that the outcome of a college football season could mean that your athletic department budget gets cut in half or worse. So what kind of incentives can you build in other than pride and prestige to be able to stay up? You know, what's that financial gap going to be? That's probably where the feasibility starts in terms See, of my concerns. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. If, if this happens in the Mac, you know, the mountain West and the, P2, whatever, merge, whatever you want to call it, whatever, however they do it, you're devaluing one of your leagues as far. You're literally saying this league isn't as good as the other league. Like we've broken up into two leagues. This is the lesser, this is the better. I don't know how that would impact television ratings I, or television deals. Um, I, I've loved the idea for a long time. I did a proposal back in 2016 that, see, like Danny, you paired up, you know, the SEC and the Sun Belt. I think the far more likely, and again, I don't think, any of this is likely, but I think the more likely outcome would be that the power five kind of breaks off and then divides all of its leagues into separate leagues and has tiers, whereas the top brands would be in the top league and then the second league and then the third and fourth or whatever, so on. So like the idea I did seven years ago was I think it was five, five groups of 14 teams and then the top three or bottom three went up and then the top league is the one that had the college football playoff at the end with the top four teams. So, I think that's more likely than a conference kind of doing it on its own. But like you said, this is the no bad ideas. And if you're the Mountain West, I mean, it's something you could try to at least get traction and attention. And if the games do work out, like if there is interest in watching these promotion relegation games at the end of the year, maybe that helps offset the TV deal overall in that the networks are willing to pay to get those games because they know they'll do numbers. Every decision in the sport is driven by the networks. Right. It's like Fox owns the Big Ten. ESPN owns the SEC. Like the SEC doesn't tell ESPN what it's going to do. ESPN tells the SEC what it will do. From the network perspective, I think the only way this works is if you really don't value any of the brands that far above the other ones. Like, for instance, let's take it to the ACC. Florida State has sucked for much of the last decade. There's no way that ESPN would let the ACC do this because that's still by far their biggest TV draw. Right. Miami is basically tied for second as far as their biggest TV draw with Clemson, despite 
completely different levels of success during that time. However, if they view everybody kind of close to the same, like if they don't really think, like if they if they value the time slots more than they value the names, which I think is very possible. Like, do people really care to watch Oregon State and Washington State over like a Boise or San Diego State? No, they watch it because it's on at 10 o'clock nationally. Obviously, we know local localized, they have bigger fan bases. So maybe from that perspective, because you don't have brands that have that much more value independent of their TV time slot late night, maybe that could work. But it's it's a very specific use case. I certainly don't think it's something that, that can spread across the sport because like Chip said, the certainty of this. Also, like rosters change so fast now. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely mm-hmm. situations in which you could have a lower division team like Colorado kill it in the transfer portal, and all of a sudden you look like idiots because the absolute best team in, in your two combined leagues is playing in the lower division. Like, does that ever happen in soccer, or is, is, yes. is change yes. slower in soccer? See, oh, I, think I think that's what makes it great. Yeah, Wait, no, no, I think that's what makes it attractive. So, like, the best team in the entire league is a lower division team. No, but it, that's but what I'm saying. Like, that's very no, possible. The, the climb. That's what people jump in on. Is like lower division team goes out and gets an influx of money. They spend on a bunch of players. They get good, and then it becomes we're going to win this lower division, and then we're right. going to take on the top division. And fans get invested in that journey. Sure, but here the journey can happen overnight because of the transfer portal. So, like, you actually have scenarios in which the lower division team is not only the best team in the lower division, they're the best team in the whole league and potentially by a lot in just a one-year flip, which would be really weird. Here's the counter to that. Do you think Colorado's going undefeated this year? No, but that's because there are teams in that league advantage. They're a great story for the first month of the season until they get to maybe this week against Oregon, and then they're playing USC, and then they're still getting attention, but they're not winning at the same level. If Colorado's in a second tier, they're going undefeated, and they're getting watched every single weekend because the ratings are just going to keep increasing because they're going undefeated. And then it builds that kind of hype going into next season when Colorado plays in the top tier. Okay, how about your playoff bid? If if, If your best team in your league is your lower division team. But Colorado's not the best team in the league if they're in the lower division. Do you think no, Colorado's I'm better is, than Georgia? No, what I'm saying is if that is how they're going to do this, right, There are it's, it's, it's a G5 league. Let's call it what it is. But they're going to keep one of the auto playoff bids or the likely playoff bids if they keep the Pac-12 name. Look at the MAC. Look at the Sun Belt. We see different teams rise up from like 2-10 and 10 to 10-2 and two routinely in those conferences. Mm-hmm. That will happen in this. I mean, look, look Utah State won – it was 2020 or 2021, right? Like they, they, they crushed it. They were terrible the year before San Jose, kind of the same thing. Like this routinely happens. So if you do this, you have to understand there's a chance that the best team, the team that you would actually want to get the playoff bid, the only team you might produce that has the chance to not get completely like their doors blown off. Isn't going to go because they're in the lower division. However, this will work. I haven't read the proposal, but like that's the first. God forbid a team went undefeated and didn't make the playoff in college football. I've never heard of that happening before. Uh, yeah, but if you could how great would it be if they did get it? How how great would it be if they did get a twelve seed though? I think it'd be awesome. Like let's keep the story going because then you get them all throughout the season, and then you say, all right, good luck against the big boys. And by the way, you're going to be playing with them all year next year. You know, I think it's mm. I think it makes it fun. By the way, shout out to. Who put in the Black Mirror comment? I just oh watched God. that on a flight. <laughs> that was a great comment. Whoever put it in there. Not appropriate, but no. uh, 100%. It, was, yeah. it made me laugh. <laughs> I spotted that one uh, as well. <laughs> All right. Look, um, 
we got too many big games, you know? And, and what we do on Wednesdays with these big games is we break them down and we call it creatively Big Game Breakdown. Saturday night, Notre Dame Stadium, South Bend, Indiana. Top 10 matchup between Ohio State and Notre Dame. 3-0 Buckeyes, 4-0 Fighting Irish. Rematch of the season opener a year ago, but my, these teams look awfully different than they did a year ago on both sides. Tom, why don't you get us started here? We got a lot to get to with this game. What is standing out the most to you? You can go nitty gritty. You can go storylines because we got to be able to hit it all. I have not been excited, you know, for a regular season matchup like this in a long time. And uh, it, it carries a lot of weight, particularly in the season that we're in right now. I feel like I know a lot more about Notre Dame at this point than I do Ohio State. Like, I've seen Ohio State in the opener against Indiana struggle against an Indiana defense that, you know, granted has continued to play very well. It might be pretty decent. So it's like maybe that was just, you know, opening game jitters. But you're also in a situation where Kyle McCord was not named until the starter until last week. And last week was also Ohio State's best offensive performance in a lot of ways of the season. But it's also going to be his first road start. And we've seen a lot of quarterbacks in their first road starts, especially in environments like the ones at Notre Dame Stadium, which, you know, are 100,000 people. It's loud, can have difficulties. So, like, that is a concern for me going into this one if I'm Ohio State. But the bigger concern for me is, like, in the trenches. Like, Ohio State's defensive line has been very good. Notre Dame's offensive line is very good. I expect that to be a very fun matchup to watch. But when you flip it around, Notre Dame's defensive front is pretty good. Ohio State's offensive line, I don't know. Mm. Like, they struggled against Indiana. And again, Indiana's been salty since. And they looked better against Youngstown State and Western Kentucky, but they didn't look great. And this is a team that overall is struggling to run the ball which I feel like is a problem when you have a young, inexperienced quarterback making his first road start. You would really like to be able to turn around and hand the ball off to those running backs that you have to alleviate some of the pressure on him to take, take, you know, to make things easier. I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. Meanwhile, on the other side, Sam Hartman is completely balling out. Audric Estime is balling out. Like Notre Dame is firing in all cylinders. They have been tested on the road against a good NC State team. I just... I think Ohio State can win this game pretty easily because it's Ohio State. It has really good players. But I just, I don't know, man. I have far more concerns about the Buckeyes right now than I do the Fighting Irish. So I, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Notre Dame wins this game comfortably. I have trivia-themed breakdowns today. Oh, for you nice. oh, yeah, let's go. Anybody want to take a guess? The most touchdowns Joe Montana threw in a single season for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Oh, I'm going to guess like 10. 24. 14. <laughs> 11. Yeah. He did 11 as for his first year starting and 10 his next. Hartman has 13 through four games. Granted, it's a different era. I just thought it was a fun stat that I had to get out there. Um, I think this is about – Tom, you nailed a lot of them. I think it's about – the big plays from Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ibuka. Um, you know, they're the explosive players. I think this is one where Ryan Day 
You get the best version of him as a play caller. There are going to be some opportunities. Yes, I think it does fall on Kyle McCord to find them and hit them. But how does how does Notre Dame defend them? You know, like how do they stack up against them? And can there, I think you've got to say multiple times in this game, you know, hey, there's a 15, 20-yard completion. Come up, make the tackle. You cannot have 60, 70, 75 yard touchdown passes where it's caught around 20, break a tackle or running open field and scores. You've got to limit the big plays, the explosives. For, for me, that's like one of the biggest keys within the game is how they defend the big plays and specifically those explosive wide receivers. I feel like I'm seeing this game differently. Honestly, like I, I've, yes, I think Sam Hartman is a legitimate upgrade for the Irish. And yes, I, I do think there are questions. Uh, with Ohio State's offense, but I I think both defenses are better than both offenses right now. I, I've been extremely impressed with Ohio State's defense. Um, after watching Indiana, like they actually moved the ball pretty well on Louisville. Maybe Indiana's offense is a little bit better than we think, and, and Ohio State just completely punked them. And they totally punked a, a good G5 offense in Western Kentucky. Mm-hmm. It, it looks to me like Ohio State, some of these recent five stars that they've recruited are hitting. The right guys, like if you're an Ohio State fan in the preseason, the young guys that you wanted to see like, would be some signal that they're in the lineup. That means like the talent is actually maturing. They're ready to go. They're in the starting lineup. It seems like the guys they took in the transfer portal defensively are, are hits. Like Ohio State, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just who they've played. I think this is one of the best defenses in the country. It's the second year under Jim Knowles. They look like they're they're playing fast. They're playing aggressive under that system. Um, I, and I look, I like Notre Dame's offensive line, but I think they have one really elite tackle in Joe Alt. I don't know that Fisher's awesome. I think he's a good player, but like, I don't think they have like two surefire first rounders. And Hartman's got hit a lot this year. Like surprising. And I know he holds the ball. He waits for stuff to get open. And I, he like Navy hit him. He had a lot of time, but like he still took some shots. He, he's taken some shots in some of these ball games. On the flip side, like Notre Dame's defense looks better than I thought it would. I think they got really good corners. They're a little better on the defensive line than I thought they would be. And like their linebackers are veteran guys who are are in the right spots. I I know everybody's going to talk about the receivers and the quarterbacks, but I, I think both defenses here are better than both offenses, to be frank. Uh, I, so I then don't see you a lot think of tackles that- for loss, a lot of pressure allowed. Um, yeah. So then that don't you think if you were looking for a you know Notre Dame home win as a dog, Audric Estime has to have another big performance. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because Notre Dame has done a really good job with some of this like run after catch stuff. And they have run the ball fairly well. Um fairly. Yeah. Estimate for sure. Yeah. Um especially that it created some explosive runs. You know, some of the the success rate stuff maybe not so much, which does that continue, right? But isn't we'll that some isn't there something about the um like that is the point to wear you down mm-hmm. because we have this big offensive line and Audric Estimate is a physical punishing runner. And that even though that thing is only going to go for two to three yards and might not count as like a successful run in the first or second quarter. I mean, there's the human element of when you get down into the third and fourth quarter and we're doing those runs, that's how you rip off the explosives because you have just slowly worn down this defensive front. Now, Ohio state, I agree with you. Like, 
this Ohio State defense is the big story. When I put Ohio State number one in the country on my ballot for the CBS Sports 133, it was the defense. It was the defensive front. It was like Denzel Burke looking like he's finally cashing in on some of that promise that we saw when he first showed up in Columbus. The transfer portal additions that you mentioned. But I think that there's something about there's something about the way that Estimate can run where it is hard to factor the way that it can wear you down over time, and that could be just huge. He doesn't need to have 130 yards and two touchdowns, but he might need two touchdowns, especially the hard ones that might come uh, in those like close goal-to-go red zone-type opportunities. I'll also say I, I think Ohio State's defense is very good too. And yes, Notre Dame only has one NFL draft pick on its offensive line, maybe, or at least first-round kind of pick. How many do Indiana, Youngstown State, and Western Kentucky have combined? Like, I think they're very good, but they have not faced an offensive line close to the level of the one that they're going to be facing on Saturday on the road. It's not the same thing. That's fair. That's that's totally fair. I think, um, too, last year you had Ohio State's um, defense did a really good job keeping them in this game, right? It was, mm-hmm. you know, And then they were able to pull away late. And Notre Dame's defense... Gave a pretty good hard. It was a pretty tough road for CJ Stroud and company last year with similar weapons, maybe better weapons. So, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of lean with you. Like, I kind of lean like under, like early lean in this one, just talking it out, wondering where all the points do come from. All fun fact that could go against that under. Notre Dame leads the country with 12 touchdowns scored from outside the red zone. Notre Dame is tied for third with 10. Notre mm. Dame has 12. Or Ohio State is tied for third with 10. Look, we talked about it all summer. Ohio State is going to challenge these receivers to see, can you beat us? Can you beat our corners down the field? Great house, Thomas, what do you got for us? Like, you will have lots of one-on-one opportunities. Can you get loose? Yeah. They did against Navy. Navy. Took a little while at times, (laughs) right? Yeah. They did not really against NC State. They those, Those explosive plays were more... Like they went unbalanced and, and NC State did not did not adjust, so they they were they were a, a man short to the boundary. One was a screen. Like if you're Ohio State, you're saying I'm trying to take away the run game. I'm going to take away the short and the screen stuff. How well is your downfield passing game? How much better? It's clearly better. How much better? Yeah, the uh, it, it's so interesting because I and I'm I don't have the the scheme eye of many, but I feel I, and I do like you said, Tom. I, I feel like I know more about Notre Dame. I like the way they call a game right now. They set up they they set you up for those like, oh, you're you're just a little bit off on your alignment with your safety. Sorry. Like that's a 50 yard run right there. Um I, I was not confident in the Notre Dame offensive coordinator given the way that search went during the offseason, but I, I'm eating my words on that one. I would just like to point out, do you think any Notre Dame fan has said, Man, I miss Tommy Reese? And granted, was, he had different quarterbacks last right. year, but you are right. I think it is noticeable the system scheming up plays better. Uh, and clearly, Sam Hartman's a better quarterback than the two you had last year. Yeah, but the starting quarterback in last year's game against the Buckeyes can't get on the field right now at Alabama. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Yeah. But it has what? been impressive. It's It's been a surprise to me, too. I thought I was very curious how he would do. Yeah, just because they hard. missed on the guy they wanted doesn't mean the guy they ended up with has to suck. Like He's been better than I thought he would. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be phenomenal to watch. We again, our official like picks 
are 100% going to be coming uh, in the locks pod. I hear a lot of like under leans right now. Uh, they they just threw the the college football 56 on the board, you know, for us. Like, sure. Eight touchdowns. Okay. Um, any any other, you know, X factors matchups to watch before we uh, hit a break and keep it rolling with more big game breakdowns? I would like to see the run game that emerged last week against Western Kentucky for Ohio State show up to this game. They're going to need it. That is a I am curious. Like, how good is Notre Dame's run defense? Uh, mm-hmm. we, we we read Irish Illustrated, obviously. Like, we knew that, that they were more – uh, they were happier with their interior defensive line play coming out of camp than they expected to be. However, NC State, and us ACC boys will tell you this, has been a poor run game team for quite a while, right? Like their success rate is always pretty bad. Navy failed to score a point, I think, uh, you know, for quite a while, for like the third time in four years in their opening game. Uh, obviously, Central Michigan, especially without their Wildcat quarterback in, in Emmanuel, uh, I think I think Notre Dame's run defense is pretty damn good. I don't know that it's great. I think I think it might be, but you know we'll we'll see. Like Ohio State's a better test. Also, like Ohio State's tackles, guys. We thought this was a weakness all year. We thought this was going to be a weakness all last year. As we told you, like they're going to lose. Hell, their their right tackle started for Cleveland the other night and did a looked, good job against T.J. Watt too. I, I mean, like <laughs> didn't get totally embarrassed right at times. Yeah. Like like you know. A, a, Made some blocks, and the other guys, are, are, what starting for the Cardinals first round mm-hmm. or so? Oh, prayers for him. Starting for the Cardinals. Oh no, <laughs> we're thinking about you, bro. <laughs> I mean, look, making millions living in Arizona, like like there, yeah, there are worse yeah, yeah. scenarios. But might be blocking yeah. for Caleb Williams next year. So, <laughs> if Caleb's dad will let him go to the Cardinals. <laughs> Oh, coming up on the other side, big game breakdown rolls on, where we finally have definitively no explanation of how we got there, but we do have a QB one at Alabama. We'll get into what it looks like with Ole Miss coming to town. Plus Florida state Clemson coach prime heads to Eugene, Colorado, Oregon, and some thoughts on UCLA, Utah, Oregon state, Washington state, Penn state, Iowa. So much to get to. And we'll get into that next. Robert half research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, Chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We here at the Cover 3 Podcast want to welcome a new show to the CBS Sports Podcast Network, and this one is going to be a banger. Kicking It is a new weekly podcast featuring Kate Abdo, Clint Dempsey, Charlie Davies, and Moa Dew. Listen as they connect with some of the biggest personalities from the soccer world and beyond, including Episode 1, which drops tonight with the legendary Thierry Henry. Hear unfiltered conversations with the game's most familiar faces that take you beyond the pitch. So what are you waiting for? Kick it with the crew and download Kicking It 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the Lane Kiffin trolling going into it. Now it's time to actually get into the matchup. An Ole Miss team that, yes, went on the road and uh, was able to take care of business against Tulane, you know, then against Georgia Tech, give up a lot through the air, but you come out with a, you know, pretty handy win. The the case has not been there for Alabama, which, you know, blew out Middle Tennessee, takes the loss to Texas, and then looks wholly uninspired uh, against South Florida. Uh, Danny, where, where do you start to pick this one apart? All right, trivia. Yes, yes, yes. Does anybody know who leads Ole Miss in rushing? It's Jackson Bentley. Dart. No, it is Chip oh, is sorry. right. Okay. It is Jackson Dart, which I think is a problem. Now, I'm curious, Bud, have you got any update on Quinshaw Judkins? Because I was reading some things that he was banged up uh, this past weekend. You know, there was a question mark whether he play against Georgia Tech. He did play, but then you saw Ulysses Bentley come in and get a lot of workload too. Ultimately, you got to get more from the run game. Um, and, and that's what you've historically looked with Lane Kiffin since he's been at Ole Miss when they've been whoever it was. Of course, Quinchon Judkins was the guy, but they've always been towards the top three of rushing in, you know, in the SEC. And it hasn't been necessarily their quarterback taking the majority of the workload. That, to me, is a little bit of a problem. Yes, it's great to have a mobile quarterback. And Jackson Dart's yards are a little bit skewed because he went off against Georgia Tech for 145 or something. Yeah, 136 he had against – of those 213 he had against Georgia Tech. But that was the first thing that jumped out to me. I don't think that's sustainable uh, with Jackson Dart leading the way. Some of, One of those backs has to step up. They've got to be able to run the ball a little bit more effectively. And then for Alabama, as much as we've talked about the quarterbacks, I think this is a Tommy Reese game. He has to utilize the, the best coordinators, work to the strengths of their quarterbacks. And against Texas, it looked like Tommy Reese was saying, I'm going to call a game based on what I want to do offensively, schematically, as opposed to saying, I have this quarterback – I'm going to call a game that best suits his skill set. He's got to he's got to change that dynamic because I don't think you can fit a square peg in a round hole if Tommy Reese keeps saying I'm going to just call a system. You need to call it for your quarterback. So to me, offensively, that to me is one of the bigger keys for Alabama and they need the receivers need to step up and like when I say scheme, he's got to get guys running open. Clearly Milrow needs to hit them in stride, which is a accuracy issue which we don't know if Milrow has but if he does hit the receivers in stride they need to start giving him separation they need to start getting open for him they need to start making big plays for him to follow you real quick on dart he's been good yeah better and look he's got a mercer performance that is slightly inflating the you know overall stat set from three games but when you have seven touchdowns, one interception, like 10 to 12 yards per attempt on the season so far. And then to go with the sort of my anecdotal notes in the two lane game, there were times where he had to step up and go make big throws on third down against a, a defense that was getting after it. it took four sacks in that game, but he was able to hang in there and be able to make some winning plays. I think Jackson Dart has been better. I, I agree with you, Danny. You do not want him as your leading uh, rusher as a team, but the overall set of what I've seen and you know what we can compile says that Jackson Dart has taken a step forward from where he was last year, where I thought he was mostly one-dimensional and not very much of a threat 
as a passer, it seems like that pass game has uh, has picked up just a little bit. For Bama, it, it feels like they need to just the, the first step is acceptance or admitting that you have the problem, right? It feels like they're trying to make this thing to where if they if they hit it right, they could still win a national title because that's always the goal in Tuscaloosa. They need to admit to themselves that they cannot win a national title with this current group of quarterbacks, right? The new goal needs to be find some way to win the West, right? Like clearly, if you get in the playoff, you can't win games with Milrow. Um, if I get well actually on that, fine. Mir- miracles happen every day in, in this world, I guess. But like, you need you need to have this kid running the ball on designed runs more than 10 times per game in these big games. He is not a good passer of the football. He does not throw the ball very well with anticipation. You need to basically get the offense redesigned this week to where you're featuring his legs. His legs are much better than his arm is. You need to play low-tempo, defense game, low possession. Try to let the offensive line block with better angles that you're creating with the QB run game. And stop trying to, to run this type of offense. We're like, oh, if it hits, we can still be that level of team. Guys, it ain't going to hit, right? R- run the quarterback, run the quarterback, run the quarterback. Let the offensive line be physical with better angles. And also, like, I don't think they got pushed around that much by USF. They kind of have a recognition issue where like, USF is outnumbered at the point of attack. USF is, is like late, or excuse me, rather way too early on some of these blitzes they're bringing. Bama's like, oh, cool, we're just going to not check out of this play. What? Like, like, I mean, good God, just flip, flip it out there. Like, like it's, it was kind of just disgusting to watch. Uh, so maybe a little more check with me. Which right? I thought I, I I maybe that's play. more, even not even the look over the side, but that's where I thought Milrow being around the system longer yeah. was more prepared for that. Because that's what I, when I went back and watched Buckner, it did not look like he was comfortable. He wasn't making the right reads. He was kind of skipping over some. He kind of predetermined where he was going to throw. It did not look like a quarterback who had played in that system very long. And I know they were together, but it's it's Saban's, you know, it's the Alabama offense, not the Tommy Reese bringing his offense. And I thought you could tell. I I agree that they need to run Jalen Milrow more because here I'll go, I'll go to the Danny trivia. Do you know who leads Alabama in rushing? Oh, God. Is it Milrow? No, Milrow? Middle Tennessee game? Nope. Is Roy Dale Williams followed by Jace McClellan, two senior running backs. I love seniors, love having experience on my offense. Don't love seniors at the running back position. Feel like if yep. you're a senior as a running back, if I'm Alabama, I'm preferring you're in the NFL right now. So I I look at this Alabama run game, and if you look at it and you take out the quarterback runs, this is a team that just strictly using running backs ranks 88th nationally in rushing success with the running backs. They're 114th in yards before contact. The offensive line is not opening holes for these guys. The running backs really aren't doing much with the what they do get when the holes are there. It has not been good. So you do need to implement Jalen Milrow and make him more active in this run game to, if nothing else, help open up lanes for your running backs and make defenses have to counter for or account for that extra rusher that, that open things up. And also, on the flip side, Ole Miss so far this year defensively, been pretty stout against the run. They're seventh nationally in yards allowed before making contact with the runner. So it's a 
decent run defense that Alabama is going up against. And his bud, I, I agree with you. This isn't Alabama team that's going to be able to beat you through the air. Like Jalen Milrow is going to hit some shots deep. And, you know, you have to hope he connects on them. But it's not like you can go up and down the field with this offense, you know, throwing the ball seven or eight times. It's got to be run, 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 shot, run, 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 shot. And I think this Ole Miss defense is pretty well equipped for that. So this is going to be a pretty tough matchup for Alabama again. I know. It's, it's also. So, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chip. I was just going to say it stinks because you're coming out of the Georgia Tech game and you're like, man, Haynes King and Georgia Tech, they threw the ball all over this Ole Miss defense. Now, all you need to do is just throw the. Oh, no. Mm. I'm so sorry. Mm. I, yeah. I've got this. I've got this door, Alabama. If you could just walk through it, then you've got the key to unlocking this Ole Miss defense. I don't know if they got it. I mean, you, you can't be in the hundreds in, in, in yards before contact and just put that just on talent, right? Like, clearly, no. there's some scheme stuff. They, they need to pick a lane and just, like, just be directed to that, right? Like, like the, just play as one offense, not try to incorporate a bunch of different stuff. Totally agree. Like, Ole Miss's secondary is way worse than its front. Uh, Ole Miss's defensive interior is actually kind of good. Yes. Uh, you know what's not good? Ole Miss's offensive line. Mm-hmm. They, like, Tulane ate their ass up. Yeah, and like respectfully, Tulane is a pretty good defensive front. Might be the best defensive front in the G five. Tulane ain't Bama, right? Like that is a major concern if you're Ole Miss. As are Franklin hadn't played, Harris didn't play last game, and Prescorn, who I, I think is one of the best tight ends in the country and definitely the best tight end in the transfer portal, he also hasn't played. Now, will they play? I, I don't know. I, I think it's certainly possible. I, I'm reading. All of our reports, you know, Bama two four seven, as well as, as inside the Rebels. But man, I, if they don't have those guys, I think Bama's going to win like a super ugly game because like they don't have anybody else who scares me on the outside. And I'm very confident that Ole Miss can't block Alabama, so they have to find ways to trick Alabama. Do you think Lane is unusually confident, or just Lane being Lane? Because the comments, Get your popcorn were- ready. I think right, I'm right. We've done that, but it wasn't all week long. Like mm-hmm. that was right before the game in the moment. I mean, he's out there tweeting songs about Taylor Swift, the castle's crumbling, like all this stuff. I mean, he is, and he feels, and he's dressed it multiple times. Like I just feel like he's more confident. Granted, maybe last year's game they kept it close. I'm just wonder what he sees, and maybe it's the quarterback issues Bama has. I don't. know. He feels like something's something's up. And I think he probably likes his chances, which I guess I but would does too. He see a I think he knows opening? Bama's done. Yeah, he sees a job opening in Tuscaloosa. He's <laughs> just going for an interview. He's going to be like, hey, listen, if I go in there and, and light it up, I'll tell you who I'm, who's going to be on the call sheet. It was like, I was, I was, they wanted me at Auburn. I'll do you one better. Let's, let's take me at Alabama. I would, I would take the first quarter over on Ole Miss's team total. I feel yes, like Lane's going to have some script cooked up for this one. Yeah. That's yeah, I'm I'm feeling a feeling a little bit worse about you know the CBS Sports HQ that they hold your feet to the fire make make you make a pick you know, even if it's on Tuesday I was like Alabama Ole Miss over now we're talking about this I'm like I don't know if I like that over anymore <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that first quarter team total uh, might be the the new way to play it what you do All Chip right. is you issue a different pick every day of the week so that way at the end of the day you were right. <laughs> And then you haven't pulled a clip. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a pretty good uh, pretty good way to do it. All right, let's uh, let's pivot to Death Valley. Florida State has lost seven straight. Clemson is the only team in the ACC that has beaten Florida State seven consecutive regular season conference games in a row, and they are narrow favorites in the game. 
You know, they are playing with you know the co- college football playoff implications through and through. Clemson, a win here would reposition all of the goals and, and sort of all the expectations. A loss, you've got two conference losses by the end of September. I mean, you're out of the you might be out of the ACC championship race at that point. Where where does this matchup hinge, uh, Bud? Well, I, I think a lot of it will come down to Clemson's receivers. Cole Turner's out. Debo declined to use the transfer portal. And look, I I don't think their receivers scared FAU. I thought Duke disrespected Clemson in, in the way they played those receivers. You know, like they they squatted on him. I said, can you run by us? I don't think so. We'll th- throw it short. We'll tackle it quick. Right? And I mean, that's... Uh, that's kind of what I think you'll likely see from the Knowles. Clemson this year cannot hit big plays so far. And it's very small sample. I mean, three games is is not that. Their big play rate, 125th in the nation. They're kind of like, do I think they look better than last year? I do. Yeah. I think the offensive line is better. Klubnik looks a little more comfortable. They seem to be settling into Riley's scheme. And, and obviously Florida State did not do a very good job defensively last week. Can they mess with the safeties enough of Florida State? Can they find ways to scheme guys open? I don't know that Clemson's receivers are, are good enough to dominate one-on-one. If they are, then Clemson's going to win the football game. If they aren't, then I think it could be a, a tough day for the Tigers. They got a lot of short fields against FAU. They did. That scoreboard looks really good, but when I was going back to review it, the defense – the turnovers and FAU's own self-inflicted wounds really set Clemson up with a lot of really good opportunities. There were not a lot of times in that game where Cade Klubnick was challenged and delivered on the challenge of marching 75, 80 yards down the field for a touchdown. And doing that, as you know, is going to require at least a few explosive plays. One of my takeaways from that game was that the scoreboard did not quite match up with how how much the offense, you know, really proved to me in that spot. So I'm curious to see what happens against Florida State's defense for sure. Trivia? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Keon Coleman had nine catches for 122 yards, four tutties, three tutties against LSU. How many catches has he since had since that game? He said nine in that game. How many catches since then? Nine. Three or four. Three. Yeah, last week. Zero versus BC. This has got to be a game where you kind of break out the full arsenal that we yeah. saw against LSU. Um, and you got to give credit to the other teams, right? I mean, they, they're doing and, – and Johnny Wilson has stepped up because he's – you know, I'm sure a lot of coaches last couple of weeks watched the game against LSU. They throw in the tape and they're like, all right, where are we going to put our best guys? Where are we going to shade coverage to? Who are we going to give help over the top? So it's provided a bunch of opportunity for Johnny Wilson. I think this has got to be a – you know, Keon Coleman steps up big. Did Jaheim Bell get banged up, bud? Have you heard anything update on him? He did get banged up. I I think he's probably going to play. Okay. Um, like with the Coleman thing, Coleman did not have a very good game blocking last week. On the, the fumble six, uh, they actually have a pretty nice slip screen drawn up that likely scores or, or goes for a, a very long gain. And instead of blocking, Coleman ran a route. Hmm. And the, the guy who hit him as soon as the back turns around is the guy that, that Keon was supposed to block. But I do think that they were really trying. First of all, like we know they worked wet ball stuff in practice all week because they thought it was going to be a hurricane. I don't think they had much of a defined game plan for a non-hurricane game, which ended up being not quite so bad. I think Jordan's trying to get the ball to some of these other guys who need touches, right? 
Oh, just like the building the confidence in the offense. A lot of guys, a lot of guys got draft stock thoughts going on, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of guys I have, have probably have coming from Mike Norvell too. Hey, let's. We, I mean, we talk Johnny all, Wilson's confidence. Absolutely, get everybody involved, keep everybody happy. I mean, that's very common to see that take place. Um, on the flip side, the defense. I think you know versus Boston College, they got they got kind of a little bit lost in zone sometimes. I think you got to go and say, all right, we're going to man up on the outside. I mean, nobody's been able to get open uh, for Clemson. You mentioned the wide receiver issues. This, you know, brought in Fentrell Cypress, one of the best DBs out there. I think this is a game where you don't try to get cute with zones and mixing coverage. You play more man and say, good luck. Let's go. You know, and trust to get some pressure up front on Kate Klubnik. And I thought the one thing that, like, you got to be careful of, and this is where you say, all right, they gave up a lot of kind of you know scramble plays to Castellanos, who clearly is more athletic and a better thrower on the run than Cade Klubnik from what we've seen him so far. Like if he beats you with his legs because you're man and you're running, you have your eyes, your back turned to him, then you just got to say, all right, that's a big one. And then you adjust if that does happen. Because you saw that happen somewhat in Duke. Remember he started running the ball a little bit, had some success there. But I think you got to challenge these wide receivers. I don't think it's a special defense. I mean, we, we said this all offseason, right? Like, I, I was on 24-7 Carl yesterday. He's like, I think Florida State's the best team in the country. I'm like, I, I don't, right? I see a bunch of guys in the back end of this defense who, like, will probably play in the NFL, but they're not going to be, like, high-end draft picks. They're Some of them will probably go sell insurance, right? Like, they're not special back there. They, they just have to be assignment sound, and the offense has to cook. That's This is an offensive football team. They need to run Jordan in this game. They have a bye week after, and then they have three or four games in which they're going to be, you know, more than a three score favorite, most likely. How so about I, I Jordan? Jordan banged. It's, it's 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 the non throwing shoulder, and he came right back in the game. Like right. to me, it's suck it up, shoot it up. You have to run because the run game has actually been really poor the last two weeks. I know they put sixty six on Sutter Miss, but Florida State was sloppy in that game. They did not run the football effectively in that one. Like if you're scoreboard watching, you'd miss it, but they. They got forced to third and fourth down a lot because they did not really have great offensive line cohesion. And I think in some of these games, teams are not they're not respecting Jordan keeping it because I think they realize Florida State's correctly, FSU's trying to keep Jordan healthy, right? In the most important games, that has to be a part of the offense. This is not an offensive line that has a bunch of NFL guys on it. It will not push Clemson around. Clemson's really good on the defensive line still. You have to even up the numbers in the run game with the quarterback run, if he plays, he better be running because he's not such a special thrower that he can just sit back there and and not run to me. Going back to your thoughts on the defense, to back that up, Florida State's defense ranks 105th nationally in explosive play rate allowed. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the sample size is the sample size, but even USM in a game in which Florida State blew them out, they allowed like 11% explosive plays on the defensive side of the ball. The, the Eagles were able to get big plays. They just couldn't hit any of the, the smaller is plays. Is that garbage time adjusted? I mean, like clearly Boston College hit a, a lot. Mm-hmm. LSU hit like that they, first play of the game. Remember first or second play of the game? That was you know that was like a 70-yard gain, whatever it was, down to the red zone. Yeah, And the 80-yarder yeah, was, think was is, against the, the freshman. This is kind of similar to what I was saying about Tommy Reese in Alabama. I do think this has to be a Garrett Riley calls a gem. You know, I think you've, like, to Tom's point, you've seen them susceptible to big plays. Well, Garrett Riley, we brought you in there to find them. You know? Let me uh, let me throw this, this name out there as an X factor. True freshman wide receiver Tyler Brown. It's just like a classic Clemson story. Greenville, South Carolina guy. 
a little bit short, 5'11", you know, not going to get uh, all the same offers that he would be if he was about four inches taller and a little bit heavier. But he had two touchdowns in the FAU game. He had one of the only explosive plays in that game, and he was running back punts. I mentioned the short field. He had a huge punt return that set up another short field for a touchdown. As the, the depth of that wide receiver room is being tested, it felt like that was a freshman sort of getting a little bit of confidence. That is a player who, if Clemson wins this football game, I think Tyler Brown has, uh, has been a big part of it. He could be a big part of really helping save this Clemson passing attack. I also think that perception-wise, most of the country saw Clemson play Duke because it was like the primetime solo game that day. And Clemson shot itself in the foot a billion times and made that game a lot more difficult on itself than it probably should have been. And they lost because they deserved to lose. And then I think people saw them struggling early against Charleston Southern. I don't think anybody's really paid any attention to Clemson in the last six quarters because they've looked like Clemson. And I think that is very much impacting the way that this line is and what people think this game is going to be like. I think this is going to be a much better game and a much more difficult test than Florida for Florida State than most people are assuming. And I don't care about last week against BC because to me that was very clearly a look ahead. We're not worried about this game. We're just thinking about Clemson kind of game, which we see from teams all the time. I mean, there were some concerning factors. They were also up 31 to 10 with 11 minutes left, mm-hmm. right? Like it, but there's definitely some stuff that concerns me there, right? Hey, like they well, need, they need Jordan to play better. They need to learn how to do that, right? I mean, I don't say which they did. They would have lost that game, you know, in the last 10 years, they would have lost it. You know, every what every year they would have lost it. They yeah. found a way to win. Yeah. That's it's, it's part of the process of getting to where they want to be. I think Mike Norvell calls it the climb. Coming up on the other side. Does Oregon's defense have what it takes to slow Shadur Sanders and Colorado? We'll get into that and much more from the Pac-12 plus our CBS nightcap Penn State, Iowa next. Those of you watching on youtube.com slash cover three just saw an excellent Syria promo. You know, that Uh, was me singing. (laughs) Sounded like it. How about my guy, Alfred Duncan from Fiorentina making the promo? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're like the eighth or ninth best squad in the league, not always expecting you to be, you know, making it up there with the Milans and Christian Pulisic and the like. Hey, for Duncan, go get you some. Uh, all right, let's dig into Colorado and Oregon. We had always looked at this point in the schedule. It is Oregon this week in Eugene. Uh, then, how about that 9 a.m. Pacific time kickoff? for USC and Colorado next week. Uh, that'll be probably in next week's big game breakdown. So when you sort the top 10 to 12 teams, you know, however you break it down, there are only two teams that have, among the peers, outlier defenses in terms of it being a little bit of a weakness. Oregon is one of those. Tom, do you think that Oregon's defense is going to end up providing enough stops and enough resistance to be able to control this game against uh, the Buffs? It's hard to say because for a lot of the game last week, Colorado State's defense did a pretty decent job of stopping Colorado. And Nebraska's defense did a very decent job of stopping Colorado a lot. So I can't rule it out. I think the bigger question is how many stops is Colorado going to get in this game? Because I have my own little metric. I shared it with you yesterday, Chip. Mm -hmm. It's a performance metric for offensive lines and defensive lines based on a variety of factors. The number one offensive line in the country so far this season is Oregon. 
it's led by the center Jackson Powers Johnson, who I drafted in my Oklahoma drill during the offseason. And the Joe Moore Award shared a clip of him this week, pancaking a defender into the fifth dimension, just to remind everybody why I drafted him in that draft. But anyways, it's an offensive line that has been very, very good. Colorado's defensive line ranks 96th, and largely that is skewed by the Nebraska game and the turnovers and the tackles for loss, which if you take that out, it has not been very good. I just don't know how often Colorado is going to get stops in this game. And Oregon is a team that to this point has looked very impressive on offense, but has also kind of looked like it's going half speed sometimes, whereas it's not really hitting the gas. And I am wondering what's going to happen in a game like this where they're going to hit the gas. But I also think back to that Texas Tech game where like kind of what you were getting at, Chip, defensively, Texas Tech was able to move the ball a little bit in that game and make it uncomfortable for the Ducks, but then they adjusted and they got their crap together and played well. So if they do that from the outset in this game, I think Colorado is talented enough to where when I, I, I'll peek ahead till tomorrow, I guess. Like when you look at the spread, I, I, don't, I don't trust Oregon's defense enough against this Colorado offense to think that they're going to cover it more often than not. I'm leaning towards the buffs on that side. But at the end of the day, like I just said, I – don't think Colorado's getting any stops unless Oregon does something really stupid and turns it over or fumble or whatever. I just do not see the buffs keeping that team off the field any more than they want to. I think this is kind of a uniquely bad matchup for Colorado. And I've had to adjust my power rating on Colorado quite a bit, but just purely on matchups. Shador Sanders leaves the nation in times hit, right? And to Colorado's credit, they know they can't run the ball and they don't try. They're not about wasting downs. They can't afford to waste downs on, on, on the run game. Like once in a while, they'll try to pop one to keep them honest, but they really don't. They, like they know they can't run it. So Colorado passes almost every play. And Shador does lead the nation in, in uh, yards lost to sacks. Mm-hmm. So like from an efficiency standpoint, that makes a lot like what Colorado does is really smart. And they should like their staff should be commended for not just trying to hold true to some kind of you know North Star of balance. But. Oregon is really good at interior pass rush. Dorless and Popo are legitimately like they gave Texas Tech some problems on the inside. And Texas Tech is not a bad offensive line when it comes to pass pro, at least not on the interior. Oregon's also been really damn good in coverage. If you looked at what happened there, it was basically scramble stuff, and Tyler Shuck ran for over a hundred. I think quarterback run has got Oregon a little bit so far this year. Shador is a pocket passer. To the core, he does not run like he he waits until the very last second, and then takes off. And I do think that increasingly, uh, Colorado has scored fewer points in regulation every single game. Right? It was what forty five or forty eight against TCU, something huge, and then they scored like thirty something against Nebraska, and then they only had twenty eight in regulation against Colorado State. And increasingly, teams are just dropping everybody, cleaning up the underneath stuff, and saying, "Colorado, you're not very physical." Can you score on us in the red zone? And to their credit, like they found ways to beat some of that cover two stuff in, in very late in the game against Colorado State using that that tight end. But I think they'll dare like they'll dare dare Colorado to run the ball against light box. I think they'll get consistent pressure up the gut against Colorado's offense. And that means you get Shador on the move a lot. And we'll see how that goes. On the flip side, to Tom's point, Oregon is number one in the nation in havoc allowed by the offensive line. Colorado doesn't get any havoc. And the thing is, Bo Nix ain't greedy, right? Oregon throws the ball less than three yards down the field more than any team in the country this year. 
And I don't think it's because they can't throw it deep. I think it's because Bo Nix is extremely comfortable taking a profit all the time. It's part, it's, it's part of their RPO game. Colorado has just been drop eight, drop eight, drop eight. But the difference here is Oregon could score in the red zone. Colorado has not been a great red zone team. It, it wouldn't surprise me if this is a little bit lower scoring, actually, just with both teams like not blitzing a lot and not choosing to blitz. But I think Oregon's much better operating in that type of space. When you don't have to, when you don't have to blitz to get pressure, it's just a, it's a massive problem for you. And I think that's what Oregon's going to try to do. You know, then you can disguise coverages, you can play more zone, you can, you know, just confuse. Um, trivia, yes, for it. So Colorado's averaging more than five sacks a game. That's worse in the country. Anybody know allowed. how many sacks allowed Oregon has? None. One. Zero. One sack. Yeah. How about even better? How many turnovers did they have? None. Zero. I think this is really – I do think this is a bad matchup for Colorado. If it was seven on seven, thinking maybe it would be kind of fun, you know, to see what they could do going back and down, up and down the field against each other. The skill set of the Colorado, especially on offense, has been really impressive in the depth. Different guys kind of coming to the forefront, especially without Travis Hunter. Super bummed that he can't play in this game, obviously. By the way, shout out to Dion because I thought that was a top three Dion moment. What he said yesterday about the hit from Henry yeah. uh, Blackburn and said, hey, let's all cool it off. We forgive him. Travis, great job by Dion for kind of diffusing the situation. But I really do think this is a bad matchup. I think this is, I want to say exposed, but I think this is kind of where the, the, you know, the Colorado kind of train comes to a halt against Oregon. Water finds its level. Like yeah. this is, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a Will Fox feel out. dumb for making for making USC Colorado like after this game is Fox going to be like, "Oh yeah, that was not not a great call." I don't or think they care because there's gonna... people will be watching. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't think the they casuals. care. Now, if yeah. they go to the Arizona State game, then it's like if they announce that one early, then it's they could feel dumb. All right. Will we do big game breakdown on USC Colorado next week yes. after, after yes. watching this game? Yes. yes. Because yes. of SEO yes. or because we think yes. it's actually one yes. of the games? Yes. Well, because SEO. it's US, I mean, because it's USC and Colorado, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like we're not doing USC Arizona State or USC and against the junior college of pizza men that are not <laughs> signing up to go that play. Italian joke? What was that? I mean, um, look, all, all these games we've done so far are not more than tw- more than a, th- a three touchdown score. Not pizza right, men, pizza guy. Spread. You know what I'm saying? They don't have yeah. anybody. Everybody's hurt. They're just pulling guys off the street to come play for Arizona State. Hey, I've fun, got. Oh, I got a fun little stat though to back up something Bud said about Bo yeah. Nix. Not. Uh, Oregon has thrown for 1,073 yards so far this season. 727 of them have come after the catch. That is a 67.8% of their passing yards after the catch. The national average is 48.5%. So that's just a super mature approach. Mm -hmm. Like, like they they are not forcing anything. Like, they're just like very cool with taking what's open. Like, how many turnover worthy throws does does Knicks have? Mm -hmm. Game manager. Interesting you mentioned turnovers. Um, so in 26 career home games across Auburn and Oregon, how about 63 total touchdowns and only three interceptions for Bo Nix? Mm-hmm. What does pace look like here? Because so far, Colorado has clearly felt like pace was an advantage for them. This is the first time when I actually think pace could be a mistake for Colorado. Or do they just try to get Shador numbers regardless? Because if you go pace, he'll get his numbers even if they lose. You uh, you tweeted out something that I thought was like the only chance that Oregon or excuse me Colorado would have in this game. You noticed it. I know. I think everybody noticed it. Like when they were down eleven and Shadur started like 
just kind of he was a little more off the cuff, started scrambling around by time because he really wasn't doing that throughout the game. He was kind of yeah. staying in, within himself and it wasn't working great, but he wasn't, you know, killing them with the turnovers. He had the one interception, but it was very like calm. Can he keep doing that sort of magical? Because he does have an elusivity that is, you know, what's kind of catching everybody's eyes. He's not taking the huge hits. Yeah, he talked the one, you know, took the one dirty hit late, but he's kind of just he has that slithery, you know, presence about him that, you know, buys time, buys time, and then he either hits a big player or he throws it away. Can Shador, I mean, you talk about putting on the Superman cape. Like if he does it in this game, he's already getting all the love and deservedly so. But if he does it again, like that all of a sudden does make him, I think, into that stratosphere of okay, let's really start comparing him to I want to say Caleb Williams because I saw some people. I think Caleb Williams is on his own, but does he enter the conversation with Drake May and Quinn Ewers and you know, which he already probably has? But if he does it against Oregon, that'll probably push him right to number two. Going back to the pace comment, so far in regulation because I didn't want the over overtime to skew it from last week. In regulation, Colorado is averaging 146.7 snaps offense and defense combined per game. That's the fifth most nationally. And they play at altitude, and we know their depth is poor. And Travis Hunter's only playing like 120 of them. Yeah, and that's double what Michigan does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I think is interesting here is they, these teams both run basically the same defense, right? It's Charles Kelly and Stan Lanning, one's Saban, one's Kirby, but they're they're both off the same tree. If you're landing in this defensive staff, you're working with your offensive staff over the last three weeks, and you're saying, hey, Let's think back to when we installed this defense when we first got here last year. And in fairness, they ran kind of some similar stuff under Mario at times. But like just from a clean slate install, because everybody's new at Colorado, what, what do they not do well? What do they not check well? What do they not pass off well? What 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 kind of adjustments? Like you know what that defense is supposed to look like, so you're uniquely prepared to try, try to look and say, okay, these are the things that Colorado does not do well within the system that we run, because we run the same damn system, right? We, we know what the right checks look like. I'm interested to see, can can Oregon hit explosives on on Colorado, or does Colorado just drop everybody and try to like you know get red zone wins? Mm. Um, UCLA, Utah, Oregon State, Washington State, Penn State, Iowa. Tom, dealer's choice. What do you want to talk about? Uh, the we don't interest- need so heavy. We're, we're a little bit run, run a little long. I'm comfortable with all the time we have spent speaking about these games, but um, what what stands out about some of these other big time matchups? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll be the big time guy. Um, Penn State Iowa, like Penn State won last week by 17 points. It should have won by 35. The offensive line has not looked great. That to me is a concern. Drew Aller did not play well last week. And I, I don't really pin it on him as much as I pin it on the offensive line, really putting him under pressure on most snaps. But they're back at home. And I think another thing, too, I don't know how big of a problem it'll be this week because while we've been so focused on the Iowa offense, the Iowa defense really doesn't look all that fantastic. Like they won't not even you know, not even from the turnover standpoint where you know they're, they're not forcing nearly as many turnovers as they did they're averaging one per game and this is a team that over the last five six years is averaging about two turnovers forced per game but just up front like that defensive line they've lost a couple guys to the nfl in recent years and i don't know that they're fully stocked again and it's going to be an interesting game like i think this could be a higher scoring performance for penn state than most people realize that you're typically seeing against an iowa defense Iowa was 130th in the nation 
in passes to receivers outside the hash marks, basically to your actual, like you're not slots, not tight ends, not backs. Then you got the stud tight end go down, and then you got their two most explosive backs go down in Johnson and Patterson. They're not going to play. How the hell does I move the football here? I don't know. Like that, I mean, to me, McNamara's going to scheme up a gem. Oh, God. McNamara doesn't look right, by the way. Like, I don't know if you guys watched that at Western game. I watched it a little bit. Just kind of we're going to be talking Mac soon. There's a play in the first quarter where I think afterwards he he looks kind of gimpy. Um, Penn State's offense can continue to operate at a bit of like an inefficient level and not hit explosive plays on script and just have it be scramble stuff and probably still run away with this because I don't I don't know how Iowa moves the ball. I, I you got to think they're going to have some short fields here. If you think that they're going to be able to keep this close. No, no, I'm saying I think Penn State will be the beneficiary of short fields because I, oh, I really don't good field, know. Good field position, so who who cares if if we're not even you know able to to hit all the explosives and dominate offensively because you're just going to have eventually enough good opportunities that you're going to cash in 20 points. If you score 20 points, you win. The That's team why total, I don't want to bet under. The team total for Iowa right now is 12 and a half. Too high. Well, look, Penn State could throw a pick, and then they. Get I know that, I'm not going to bet lose. it because of that, but it's just it's like they're Vegas is with you. Like nobody understands how Iowa's going to find points in this matchup. I'm Ma- still Ma- on McNamara the isn't good. The receivers are not what they thought they were. Like all of the skepticism on Iowa that you had in the offseason. Like, are they really going to replace these dudes on the D line? It looks like that was just media hype and not true, right? The receivers that they took, like, oh, we got this guy from Ohio State. He, he, the re- only reason he didn't play Ohio State is because Ohio State's loaded. Well, he hadn't been any good so far. They lo- like they were right about the tight end, and now he's gone. They were right about the young explosive backs, and now they're gone. I, I, yeah. I think that the precedent under Phil Parker allowed you to not – I don't think that's just media hype. I think you just well, say, like, you have continually replaced NFL draft picks with guys who have developed in the program and then been all-conference caliber players. To assume it would happen again, I don't think was that much of a reach. No, that's fair, but it it, it doesn't appear to have happened. Right. Um, what about those Pac-12 games, Danny? UCLA, Utah, Oregon State, Washington State, what stands out? Um, Utah getting Cam Rising back. What does he look like? Is he rusty? And Dante Moore might be special for UCLA. Like I, I they announced him back. No, I don't. No, I think it's just come on, it's Kyle expectation. I'm just saying. Right. I, I'm just saying. Like, like they they have, also, they'll never announce. They'll never announce. It's just kind of what you're hearing. But you can't trust anything that you hear in this one. Maybe that's why it's what is it four right now. But even with or without him, I kind of like UCLA in this spot. UCLA's defense has been playing really well. They've kind of getting things figured out offensively, and they might have a special quarterback. No, it's tough to go to Rice Eccles, but I just wonder because Utah's been good. I mean, they're, they're they haven't been great. I don't know if they're the same team that's won the you know Pac-12 championship back to back. Kyle Whittingham doesn't have confidential documents in his bathroom. He keeps them somewhere much safer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Like to me, this line this line expresses some skepticism that he's playing. I mean, like. Oh. Like you, you Utah's a pretty known like four point home field, and the line right now is four and a half. So we think Utah with rising is only a half point better on a neutral site than UCLA. That's what we're that, that's basically what this line is saying. If, if I mean, I don't know. I I 
of rusty Cam Rising, who hasn't played, even if he is back, I don't know how you know on firing on all cylinders. I, I I talked about this before the show. I think Dante Moore versus Rusty Cam Rising. I'd rather have Dante Moore. Yeah. Wow. And who you do you feel better about? Because both have been great stories. It's the Pac-2 matchup. Who do you feel better about, Washington State or Oregon State? Oregon State. Washington State. I'm with Tom. They've been tested more. Like Oregon State's had everything go pretty smooth. DJ looks like he's back, but and they kind of look clunky last week too. Right, yeah. right. And I mean, I, I think this is one where you find out. Okay, like DJ, you you went out there. You're looking good so far. This could be a game he has to do a little bit more because they've really they do a great job of play action pass. You hit on the big plays. I mean, he's he's always been really good. We've known that. But then there's also been that game that he gets challenged a little bit more and you come up with a clunker. And I Washington State's wins, I think, have been more impressive. Agree. Competition's been better. Wins have been more impressive. Can't run the ball for anything. You know, that's like... Right. And I, I think that... I think Oregon State's... It's not DJU. When, it, when I responded Oregon State to your question, that is a Oregon State defense, Oregon State run game. And going into a really tough atmosphere, that's what my my lean to the beeves is based on those things that feel a little bit more sustainable, repeatable, or whatever than you know just trying to trust Cam Ward to be able to go out there and make it happen. Like the Wisconsin win six weeks from now, does it feel the same as it felt in the moment when they beat Wisconsin? We'll it see. doesn't feel the same after after Georgia Southern put up 480 yards on Wisconsin. Like. If Georgia Southern doesn't have six turnovers, Wisconsin's probably losing that game at home. Clay Helton, like, super villain. Yeah. I I think I agree with Chip here. I, I prefer Oregon State in the matchup. I, I go back to my preseason notes, and I look at the number of true impact players Washington State lost on their defense who are now like having good careers so far in the NFL very, very early on or like we're big-time Pac-12 defensive players. And I, I'm always skeptical that you can replace that kind of stuff if you don't recruit at that like top ten, top fifteen level. So uh, I think Oregon State, but I think it's know. a great, I mean, a phenomenal yeah. game. Yeah, like pack two a, title on the line. Pack two <laughs> title on the line. Oh man! Again, loaded week. So much to to break down, and it's going to make you know not only today's show, but tomorrow's locks episode, Saturday night's reaction show, even all the way to Monday upon further review. So much that we're going to be able to take away as we start to get into week five, six, and seven, and this season just starts the to roll down the hill like a snowball. So uh, fired up to break it all down. Thanks to everybody that joined us live. Come hang out Thursday, eleven a.m. Eastern time for our week four locks and you can follow him on twitter at tom finelli you can follow him at danny canelli you can follow him at bud elliott three you can follow me at chip underscore patterson gentlemen thank you very much thank you see you